What must we do to be saved? This question draws us into the theological questions of salvation, justification, sanctification, and especially the relationship between faith and works. And the diversity of opinions on these issues have sadly divided Christians for centuries. Both sides of the arguments claim St. Paul as their champion, but especially through St. Paul, they point to Abraham as the model for all men of faith. Many non-Catholic Christians still presume that Catholics believe that they are saved by works, but is this true? And was Abraham a model of faith without works? Well, this is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we're coming to you from the Coming Home Network studios. And we'd love to have you a part of this program. Uh, you can check out all the old Deep in Scripture programs at deepinscripture.com. Uh, you can uh, actually you can watch the video of this program at our website. We'd love to have an email from you with questions or comments about the program at dis at chnetwork.org. You can find that email at the website. And uh, you can subscribe to the program uh, at CH Network Facebook page or at Twitter at CH Network. And today's program <clears throat> on this issue of salvation, faith, works, justification, sanctification is a continuation of the program that Ken and I began last week looking at Galatians uh, chapter 3, 1 through 6. And we expanded it because last week um, we looked at this issue of faith and works, the relationship, as I mentioned in the opening, it's been a conundrum for Christians for many centuries, and Ken and I didn't presume that we were going to solve all the problems in one half hour, but we wanted to present the, the position that uh, we can see from history as well as excuse me, theologically, scripturally, has been held by the church from the beginning. Um, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but particularly on today's program, we, we want to complete what we presented last week and address the issue of, of Abraham. St. Paul used Abraham as a man, model of a man of faith. And in, essentially throughout the history of the church, nearly every side that poses a answer to the conundrum of the relationship between our faith and works have always used Abraham, the example of Abraham and scriptures related to Abraham uh, as their champion. And so Ken and I will look at that in a moment. But as I'd like to do every week, I want to oppose to Ken as we begin an email that we received in the mail. We would love to have your emails to let us know whether this program's an encouragement to you, how we can prove it, uh, any comments, any, any verses you'd like us to look at or topics. Um, and uh, Ken, an email came in, and I'm gonna pose it to you because you're the resident theologian. Uh, I'm just the old football player uh, trying to keep from, um, from getting a big <laughs> stomach. But uh, anyway. Uh, the the email came from a uh, Jacqueline. I guess that's the way you would say it, Ken. Uh, <laughs> In français. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Jacqueline. Uh, and she basically says this. I'm going to shorten it a little bit because she had some good, nice comments. But I'm going to shorten it. She basically said this. She said, you know, "Thank you for your discussion of that 
passage, uh, uh, like deep in Scripture, blah, blah, blah. But, um, but you guys skipped verse 1. You jump so quickly into verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and on that you, you, over, you jumped over the statement in verse 1 that I really don't understand what Paul was saying. Could you spend a little time in your program talking about what Paul could have meant when he said, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Uh, thank you in Christ, Shakali. All right, Ken, well, that verse, in the, this is a Galatians 3.1. And frankly, I've always felt that this was a, a conundrum verse. Um, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, Ken, it seems that the underlying conundrum with this verse is that Paul is writing this, I think as you said last week, probably in the 50s? Mm, that's right. Mm -hmm. So he's probably writing this in the 50s uh, to the church at Galatia. And it is very unlikely that any of the recipients that he was writing to were in Jerusalem uh, at, the, at the mount where our Lord was crucified. So when he says before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, it is totally unlikely that he meant he was speaking to Jews who happened to be in Jerusalem to see our Lord on the cross. So if that ain't the issue, then what was he referring to there in the first century? Well, that's a, uh, I think the question is uh, even more forceful <clears throat> when you consider the way he begins the verse. He says, Oh, they translated foolish Galatians, and you could translate, oh, you unthinking Galatians. <laughs> Just think back. He's asking them, look, he's told them about in the previous verses how he was crucified with Christ, and Christ is living in him, and the grace of God does not, does not nullify, he doesn't nullify the grace of God, uh, <clears throat> because he's going to argue, he has been arguing, that righteousness or justification comes not through the law, but through Christ as a free gift. And then he says, oh, you unthinking, you foolish, you you stupid Galatians. <clears throat> and it, what is, he's, now he's going to remind them of something they should know. And how does he do that? Well, he says, well, you, you must have been utterly bewitched. You must have been totally duped. Because you remember that Jesus Christ was crucified for you before your very eyes. Now, the point you made, of course, none of these people were at the crucifixion on Mount Calvary. So what does he mean? Well, I guess there's two ways to look at it. One is <clears throat> he could be thinking, you might say very metaphorically, and he means that when he preached Jesus Christ in these cities, or when whoever did that they heard from, that somehow you know people could picture Jesus Christ being crucified in their minds. There is another possible interpretation, which I have to confess I would never have thought of maybe 25 or 30 years ago. Um, but the Greek word that he uses here when he says portrayed, um, 
is really a word prografo. It means to to write something. It means either pro means before. So it means either before in the sense of I did it before something else, or it means in front of. So he's saying that Jesus Christ is being like, he's being written, writ big in front of you. And how was he writ big? Well, the only answer that I can come up with is that the only way in which Jesus Christ crucified could be pictured would be in the liturgy of the church, namely in the Eucharist. If Paul believes what Catholics believe, and we do believe that he was the first, one of the first Catholics, <laughs> um, that the Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, the crucifixion is being replayed, as it were, uh, not in um, visual form, literally, but the crucifixion is present in the Eucharist and in the liturgy. And so in that way, you could say, well, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so that's possibly what he's referring to here. Yeah, well, especially if you if you think from that perspective and then think through the priest um, reciting the words of the inst of institution, mm -hmm. uh, in which then uh, majority of people who themselves at the time could not read would not have had scripture. Of course, they have not yeah. the privilege of any of the other media in their minds, they would not have envisioned that, that the use of words to convey pictures was the norm of their culture. Mm -hmm. That's right. It was the norm of their culture. So um, that really does make sense. And as you said, I never would have thought of that. And as many have said in, uh, in books that are presently in print, uh, drawing out the beauty of of what is the liturgy, uh, you know the the uh, the earthly experience of the heavenly worship. Then we see this whole thing that was more assumed. I'm wondering, Ken, whether you do you do you see any examples of this kind of metaphor or example uh, between seeing the Eucharist as the the visual portrayal of Christ crucified. Does that show up in any of the early early church fathers that you know of right off the offhand? Oh, yeah, it it it, it does. And um, if I had uh, had any chance to look at some of them, I could have slide your chapter and verse. Uh, but it does occur in um, there's a text in in one of Ignatius's letters where he sort of alludes to this, as well as uh, there's um, there's a, a reference to it in I think in Clement his letter to the Corinthians. But where you see it most poignantly is in the Eastern liturgies, particularly you see St. John Chrysostom in the late 4th century, and he refers to this all of the time. Um, and he says, and now he, he tends to call the altar the table. That's in more of the Eastern way of speaking. So the table, uh, this table is prepared for you. For example, he says that the table is exactly like the manger in which Jesus was born. And another says, he says, the table is exactly like the crucifixion. And just as blood and water flowed out of Jesus' side when he was crucified, so in baptism and in the Eucharist we have the water and the blood coming forth into in, into our lives. So, um, yeah, they, they uh, the, the church fathers... Um, more than once emphasized this fact 
that this union of heaven and earth means that the eternal effect of the crucifixion, namely forgiveness of sin for all people, available to all, is portrayed in the liturgy. This is why the Second Vatican Council says so wisely in uh, Sancro Sanctum Concilium, or the, litur- the Constitution of the Liturgy, that the, litur- the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our Christian life. It's the source, it's the very power, because it's Christ. Christ is the power of our life. And then it's also the summit, it's that to which we come back to, because the ultimate goal of our life is to worship Christ as the God-man. I, before we move on, I'm going to throw this one other issue out, because I think it's worth us at least addressing, is that, of course, another way of understanding this is remembering the tradition that Luke is not just a doctor, but an artist. And, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and so we do know through the evidence of uh, inscriptions in catacombs and in other places, some of the early places of liturgy that have been uncovered, that we find depictions of Christ crucified on stone yeah. and in mosaics. And a lot of that has not survived over the years because of the upheavals, not only that was happening then, but we're seeing it happen now in the Middle East. I mean, that's the way it's been ever since. Um, sadly, yeah. You know, uh, you know, sadly, uh, when, uh, uh, when uh, the sons of, of uh, uh, Jacob were divided. But, uh, but, the, but the question arises is, um, uh, is he talking about a crucifix? And I wouldn't have seen that 20 years ago either. I would never thought. But because we know that throughout the history of the church, uh, the crucifix is not a new thing, that it goes way back as uh, yeah. a symbol, basically carrying out what our Lord said when he pointed the people to the, the serpent on a cross to, as a symbol of their salvation in John chapter 3. Uh, that, oh, that's a good parallel. That you yeah. know that you have portrayed before them their salvation by portraying mm-hmm. Christ on the cross, modeled with the serpent on the cross. That it would not be surprising mm-hmm. that as early as this in Christianity, we have that crucifixion portrayed for them as a reminder to these people that can't read. Well, that 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 seems to me that that reminds me of the the text in. Uh, John chapter 3, of course, one of the most famous verses about God so loving the world. But in the verses just before that, uh, John writes, uh, even as Moses, uh, speaking, Jesus speaking here, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that word lifted up has a very uh, poignant and special meaning in the Gospel of John. And all, all, all stu- serious students of the Gospel of John recognize this, that the lifted up means crucifixion. It means being lifted up on the cross. Hmm. And so he says, <clears throat> and why did, in other words, just as the serpent, as you said, as those ancient Israelites would have looked at the serpent, the very thing that had bit them and given them these you know, the poison is the very thing now that's going to be their salvation. So he's saying that the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross, and when you see that, then you will be saved. When you look to that. So then he goes on, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, and then he talks about God's love for the world. That's why our Lord sent the 
uh, sent uh, our, the, his son, when God sent his son into the world to be our savior, that crucifixion is the visible uh, testimony that he saved us by his death and life. Yeah, so it's possible that behind this is this, uh, it points to the, the yeah. power of the visual portrayal of the crucifixion of Christ to cut us to the quick, uh, to recognize what he has done for us, and really yeah. the need for the church, because uh, by taking our eyes off of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can very foolishly be drawn into alternate explanations for everything. And isn't that yeah. why, even to this day, the Catholic Church has always emphasized the crucifix as opposed to merely the cross, because the crucifix uh, par excellence emphasizes the point of the cross. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. You know, I just read something the other day from uh, St. Padre Pio of Pietro Celli. And he he's basically in the in the context he's talking about not to be overly um, uh, not overly worry about your about this or that particular problem that you're facing. He said, keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus crucified. Take the crucifixion. Think about it because that's where the source of healing comes from. So we as Christians, I mean, we, we face all kinds of difficulties, not just from outward, but even from our own souls. And we have doubts about our salvation, or we may have doubts about our our uh, progress in holiness and so forth. He says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus crucified. And that seems to be very much in core with what Paul says here, that um, when he asked them, who's bewitched you? Because Jesus Christ was crucified before you. In, in front of your eyes, as it were. Yeah. Keep your eyes fixed on that. You know, it reminds me of an experience I had when the uh, early days of my journey to the church. I happened to be living in Steubenville, and I would spend as much time as I could in their a little chapel called the Portioncola, which is a, yeah. a, a replication of St. Francis's little church, a wonderful stone little church. If any of you are ever by Steubenville, there's lots to see there at the university, but make sure you get some time to go over and pray at the Portioncola, and you, you go in, and there's a little wooden um, tabernacle. Uh, it's portrayed on the front, a picture of the Annunciation. And during adoration, they would open that, but usually when you go in, it's closed. And then there's candles, and that's the only light in this chapel. But I remember going in there, Ken, and I, I wasn't even a Catholic yet. I, I'm trying to understand Catholic devotions, and I'm sitting there mm -hmm. looking at this um, little kind of five-sided pointy little, like a little house thing and Christ is in there in the Eucharist and there's the picture and I'm looking at that Ken and then I closed my eyes to reflect on it and you know how, how in the darkness of your eyes the glow of the image from your yeah. your, your iris is there yeah yeah you know, that's right there and you close your eyes and then you see what you were looking at it, it kind of you know, and I remember thinking about that is what the crucifix is to be for the center of our life, is that when we pray, it's through understanding that the glow of what Christ did for us on, on, on the cross 
is to be the window through which we see everything, is what Padre Pio was saying. Through which the window, when we close our eyes, we should be seeing the image of the cross. As my our Protestant brothers and sisters think, well, then you guys don't believe in his resurrected body. No, we believe. It's because we believe in his resurrection that we have a crucifix. If it wasn't resurrected, we wouldn't have a crucifix. Oh, that's a good point. You yeah. know, so, that's I mean, right, that yeah. that's the point. And uh, yeah. so, I mean, there's what Paul's uh, getting on here, it seems to me. And, and thank you, Ken, for work dealing with this email. I suppose we should move on to our topic. Uh, again, we'd love to hear more from you, folk, if you have any other emails. And Jacqueline, thank you for your email. All right, Ken, first, before we get into Abraham, what I'd like to do is I'm going to reread the passages that we looked at last week. And we probably should just give a summary as a background to what we're talking about today. Paul had written... Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Ken, maybe as a summary of last week, was St. Paul in these verses, as well as other places, drawing this distinction between faith and works such that, what he was he meaning to say that only faith in Christ saves us and our works do not matter or are not necessary to uh, uh, supply anything for our salvation. Well, part of the key to uh, to that question is in verse thirty when he says, "Having begun by the Spirit, do you do you expect to be completed by the flesh?" And th- this contrast between flesh and spirit in Paul, not in every text, but at least in this text and others, is a contrast between you know human effort and divine grace. And so what he's saying is that you you can't be completed in your journey of faith without divine grace. Um, but in order to do that, um, the, the, the danger, rather, that the Galatians were falling into was to rely simply upon their, their human effort. Now, the contrast to that is not to have human effort. The contrast of that is to have our human effort be inspired and motivated by divine grace. In other words, he wasn't making a contrast between no works and all faith, or all faith in the work, uh, you know, or no all faith and no works. He was making the contrast is a little more subtle than that. The contrast is between um, trying to do it without God and doing it with God's grace. And so he's um, he's asking them basically in those verses that we talked about last week. <clears throat> are you going to make this journey of faith? this journey of, of a faith-filled life on your own power or on God's power. And what he's calling them back to is not to faith without works. He's calling them back to living, doing their works through faith. Yeah, isn't the issue here, Ken, really dealing always with people who have a misunderstanding of what faith is and what works are. And that yeah. part of the conundrum is that when people convert to Christianity from other traditions, 
it takes a while to deal with baggage you bring with you. And if you yeah, come if you come from a background where from bad theology, if you come from a background in which you've you've come to believe that it's through your actions that you obligate God to bless you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a list of ten things that God says I need to do for Him to be happy with me. If I do these ten things, He's happy with mm -hmm. me. I've done these ten things, I'll be saved. If you come from that kind of a background, and then you hear the gospel, the fullness of our Lord Jesus, what He did on the cross, what the cross means, the sacrifice on the cross means, and you accept that with great, by grace, you accept that and you move forward and it changes your life. That doesn't necessarily mean that the habits, the way you tried to live in obedience to God for the last 5, 10, 15 years immediately go away. And so what can sometimes happen is that you can take the gospel and then drop the grid of, of your previous assumptions onto that. Or mm -hmm. you can twist the gospel because you want to reject what you came from. That must have been totally wrong. And so you rewrite yeah, the gospel in another direction. And to me, that's where yeah. faith without works came from. Because from people who came from a tradition in which by doing certain works of the legal, religious legal law, you had a sense of obligating God to you. And therefore, now that you're a Christian, well, that must all be wrong. So you throw all that out and faith alone. Uh, and that's kind of not only where what Paul was dealing with, but mm. what 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 happened during the Reformation. Well, and, and it really that's a great explanation for um, even understanding what was happening in Galatia, because by and large, in man-made religion. Uh, in, in religions that are seeking for the divine and God, they're usually based upon me doing something to appease God. That was especially true in the Greco-Roman religions and the mystery religions around uh, the uh, Mediterranean world. And Galatia, of course, is in Asia Minor, what is today Turkey. So these people believed that they could appease God by something they did. So message of grace coming in that you can do nothing but you know trust God, rely on God. That's 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 an all that's a pretty um, um, that's a pretty revolutionary message. Well, let's take a, a pause, Ken. Take a break. When we come back. I'm going to go right back to you with this because I want you to continue that okay. thought. See you in a bit, everybody. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. Thank you. 
Next time on The Journey Home. Join Marcus as he welcomes former Lutheran Elizabeth Ficcicelli to the show. They'll discuss how the Holy Spirit led her home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. I'm here. This is Marcus Grodi. I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we're looking at this question of faith and works, but particularly want to you know, move into Abraham as a model of this. And Ken, just for an example, um, I have before me my old Protestant uh, preaching Bible. It's got all my notes and it's an old study Bible that I used when I was a Presbyterian pastor. And the, the editors of this particular Bible, uh, before each paragraph, have added their own topics. All right? Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of the verses 10 through 14, which is all about this whole issue, the authors of this particular uh, commentaries say faith without works. So I mean that's how they that's how they yeah. put the grid on. And of course, then 15 through 18 in chapter three of Galatians, they call the they see the Abrahamic covenant as the model of this. But first, though, verses six through nine, we see the witness of Abraham. So let's 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 look at this question. Does Scripture uh, particularly St. Paul, uh, did they see Abraham as the model, the example, for a life of faith without works? As Paul says in verse 6, after he has said all that we just read a moment ago, Thus Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Uh, what do you think, Ken? But first of all, well, is it not true that Abraham was the champion for faith without works for most people that have pushed this idea? Oh, and absolutely. And and in a sense with good reason because in the times of of Paul in the New Testament, uh to all Jews, I mean Abraham was the forefather of faith, right? So that you when you meditate and you think about the history of Israel, you're a Jew, you belong to the people of God, you belong to the people of, of Israel. Who do we look for as for inspiration? Well, we could say Moses. Moses is, you know, uh, sort of the representative of being the lawgiver. Abraham is the original man of faith. And so we, we find this quotation in verse 6. Paul says, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, for righteousness or as righteousness and he goes on you know 
that it's those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. Now, Paul is, is quoting this from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. It's significant that that's where the Lord <clears throat> comes to Abraham and says, I am your shield, I am your very great reward, and I will give you a son. And that son will be like the stars, and your descendants will be like the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And then, as when it says in Genesis, he believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, it's significant, I think, that this occurs in chapter 15 and not in chapter 12. Now, chapter 12 is the beginning of Abraham's call of faith, or the, the call that God gives to him, go from your country and go to a land where I will show you. In other words, he's already believed God. He's already acted on that faith. He's gone into a land he didn't, uh, he didn't expect to ever be in, and has taken his whole family, really his whole clan, uh, you know, of, of distant relatives as well as near relatives, and they've gone to this land now Abraham, perhaps, is beginning to doubt. And so he says, and you, for example, in chapter 15, verse 2, he's asking, well, look, I don't have a child like you promised, so maybe Eliezer of Damascus, maybe he could be that heir. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you that son. You just have to wait on my promise. In other words, this is not Abraham at the beginning of his faith journey. This is Abraham in the middle of his faith's journey. And it, God speaks to him again. And then it says, God believed him. Now, contrast that with the way in which people have understood Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. They've seen that as the beginning of their faith journey. That's justification by faith alone. And so they're, they're looking at the text in a different way than Paul was looking at the text in Genesis. Paul's looking at the text as any time that we believe God, trust his promises, receive him into our life, for example, in the sacrament of confession or reconciliation. When we believe God, then it's reckoned to us as righteousness because we trust his promises. So Galatians chapters, uh, chapter 3 and verse 6 is a reaffirmation that there are many points in our lives in which we can believe God and it becomes credited to us, as it were, as righteousness. You use the word credited to us. Maybe that's important, Ken, because I know you're, uh, of all things, you are a Greek scholar. The word, it was reckoned to him as mm -hmm. righteousness. Mm -hmm. You know, starting with Luther and, and through Calvin and uh, the other reformers, and then, of course, you and I were both Presbyterians, that we understood that reckoning as um, that external justification that one receives that covers our sins. Right. We saw in that issue that if you had faith in Christ, then... Uh, we are we're totally depraved. There wasn't a thing we could do to earn God's love and grace. Even the arrogance of thinking we could is a sin in itself. Um, so by having faith in God alone, then our sin is covered. 
and we receive this righteousness. In fact, Luther uh, continued to, to back that idea with the very verses that follow here, because if you get down to verse 9, so then those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law, for he who through faith is righteous shall live. Well, there's Luther's statement. You know, there is the quote that Luther points to as that which changed his life. As Luther came to see this, not as anything we do, even by grace, but as something that is given to us, that we didn't deserve, that covers us. As an, and then my question is, Ken, does the Greek word here that's behind the word reckon, does it justify that interpretation? I don't, I think they understood the word correctly, but they drew the wrong inference from it. The word logizomai is a word that's used, it means to reckon or to count. It means to figure things out, and so it'd be like a term that an accountant would use to you know, make sure that the counts are balanced. So the word they've understood correctly, it does mean to reckon or to count, but then <clears throat> what kind of context do you put that in? Let me use the business analogy for just a moment. <clears throat> Accounting is a activity within a large business or a business that keeps the book straight, but it's not what drives the business, right? In other words, if you don't have transactions, if you don't have, if you don't sell something, whether it's a service or a good, that's the heart of what a business is, right? The accounting just keeps you on record as to what's been going on within the business. The accounting, as it were, of God is is not the whole part of the Christian life. It's not it's not the whole kid and caboodle, as it were. What is the Christian life about? It's about living in Christ. As Paul says back in chapter 2, verse 20, he says he died to the law, he's crucified with Christ, he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him, and the life which he lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God. And so what he's talking about is this intimate union with Christ that takes place, as he says later in chapter 3, through baptism. Now remember, I, I mentioned this verse last week, but he says in chapter 3, uh, verse 27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. In other words, Christ has put his mantle of righteousness on you. He filled you with the Holy Spirit, as in the verses we read last week, when he says, you began with the Spirit. Do you expect to be completed without the Spirit? No. So it's the it's this inner infusion of grace. So God, there is a legal aspect to our relationship with God, but it's not the whole relationship with God, and that's where our Protestant um, ancestors that you and I have, because we both grew up Protestant, uh, that's where they that's where they they missed. They took the part and made it into the whole, and that what I'm afraid is is where the danger lies. So what Paul is saying here is that Abraham believed God at that moment in his life. He wasn't depending upon himself. He was depending upon the promise of God. But then later, um, other writers, like the writer of Hebrews, and maybe that's even Paul himself, will say that Abraham offered up Isaac by faith. 
So Abraham's work of going up Mount Moriah, of offering his son, is a work of faith. And that's the real contrast. It's works which we do trying to curry God's favor that never will bring us to God. Or it's the works of faith which, having had faith, having believed God, having entered into a relationship with Christ, then it's those works which are the works of faith. That's the real contrast. Uh, or I should say, that's the balance between um, for faith works itself out in love, as Paul says later in chapter 5 of Galatians, or a faith that's trying to curry God's favor, which we can never do that. Excuse me, a works that's trying to curry God's favor. Ken, you mentioned earlier as we were talking about that email um, that in John 3 we see our Lord, whether it's the words of our Lord or whether it's John the theologian, you know, uh, adding his comments to the story of our Lord in John chapter 3. You mentioned the issue of uh, the serpent being lifted up as a drawback to what happened there in Exodus. Um, that if the people looked on the servant, the serpent, serpent. excuse me, looked mm -hmm. on the serpent, they would be healed yeah. as a model for looking on Christ and the cross. Now, I remember as a Presbyterian using that as a model of faith alone, that the, the Hebrews, it wasn't a matter of what they did, it was casting their eyes on the serpent on the cross and therefore they would be healed and that the parallel with our lord would mean that we look upon his crucifixion his death and resurrection his sacrifice therefore is that which by his stripes we are healed from isaiah so i would have i used that as a as an image of faith without works address that if you would Ken. Right. You know, it's again because um, our, our good-hearted Protestant brothers and sisters uh, and their ministers like we were, um, <clears throat> because they're using biblical language and they're not getting everything wrong, um, the, the, the use of the language of look to Christ on the cross is not, a, is not bad language. Um, it's just a question of what you infer from that. You see, in the case of the Israelites, the question is, uh, how were they saved from Egypt? Well, they were saved by believing that Moses, when Moses said, God's going to bring you out of Egypt. But they also had to do what? Well, they had to pack up their stuff and go through the Red Sea in order to be saved. When they were in the wilderness, uh, uh, Moses says, look to the serpent and you will be, you'll be healed. And what did they have to do? Well, they had to look to the serpent. In other words, faith is not an event that justifies one time in our life. Having faith in Christ is something that justifies at many points of our life. And it seems to me that's consistent with, with the message of the whole New Testament. Because yeah. as Paul says, or whoever the writer of Hebrews says, when, when, uh, when Abraham was taking Isaac up the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice to God, he was walking by faith. When, uh, when he was, you know, having... Uh, love making love with his wife Sarah he was acting in faith but it was also a work at the same time so that the same thing can be looked at from the point of view of faith or it can be looked at the point of view of work when we do something gracious and and giving to someone else um, is it a work or is it faith well it's both 
depending upon the perspective you're looking at it from. Faith and works are deeply intertwined in every aspect of our lives. And so that's why Paul emphasizes sometimes that we need to emphasize faith, and it's not our work. On the other hand, sometimes he emphasizes you need to work faith out in love in whatever you do. Or as he says in Philippians chapter 2, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation on a daily basis. You know, what you, you point out the issue of the danger, the, the reason why Scripture alone, the Bible alone idea, is such a danger is that we can be blind to the presumptions we bring with us, the lenses through which we then interpret Scripture. And if we come to the Scripture with a mental idea that there's this a chasm between faith and works, and that anybody that emphasizes the need to go out and help the poor or to, or to do anything like that, uh, mm. to be pleasing to God, well, then you're getting into works. Um, and that it's faithful. You see through these grid, and so you reinterpret Abraham, you reinterpret everything. And the real danger mm. of that. That's true. And, we, you know, we need to uh, recognize that that's why the Lord did not just drop a book out of the clouds uh, with, a, but the, with five letters on the front, B-I-B-L-E, uh, but but the Lord chose apostles, breathed the Holy Spirit on them, promised that the Holy Spirit would guide them into truth, and then sent them forth, and they appointed and ordained their successors, and then their successors, all of them wrote letters equipping congregations that were struggling with the issues of the faith, and to me, this is a point that I didn't see before, Ken, and that is that if, in fact, the Christian faith is a matter of faith alone, believing in Jesus, and that's all that's necessary. So, you, Ken, you and I already believe in Jesus. We've accepted him as our Lord and Savior. All right, well, now what do we do? Well, do we just believe more for the rest of our life? Well, the interesting thing is that Almost every New Testament document, other than possibly John and the letters of Luke, were written intentionally to men and women who already believed. Yeah. You know, John says he's writing this that they might believe. Luke was writing to, I think, I don't have it in front of me, Theophilus, okay, trying to mm -hmm. help him understand. But Paul, James, Peter, Jude, John, in his letters, uh, mm -hmm. in Revelation, were writing to people that already had faith in Christ. And so you see in these letters what they're all about is what faith really means. Faith is to be worked out in love. And if they yeah. don't do that, nearly every one of those letters reminds them that if they continue living in sinful lifestyles or lifestyles that are not according to the faith, they won't have heaven. That's in yeah, almost every yeah. New Testament book written to Christians who already believe. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and so what I think that means is that the fullness of the gospel 
you know, and there have been various denominations like the full gospel. I think it's called the four square gospel church or something. Uh, there's, there've been, that's different thinks, than the one on the corner downtown here at the church of what's happening now. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, <laughs> the, uh, what I think these people, uh, said these people, what, what all of us, I should say, need to realize is that Christ said to the apostles before he ascended into heaven, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. The, the obligation of the leaders of the church and of all Christians is to not live a minimal Christian life, but to live a maximal Christian life, to embrace everything that Christ has said and done and commanded, even if it costs us our life. Well, it may not cost us our life as martyrs, but it sure costs us a lot of sacrifice in between. And, and again, that's, that, that's so necessary today because it's easy for all of us to want to conform the gospel, to conform the church to the way that we want it to be. Now, in, in, let's use an example of ourselves as Catholics. When we try to define the, the faith the way we want it to be. Suppose we want women to be ordained to the priesthood. Or suppose we want married men to be able to be ordained to the priesthood. And this is our pet issue, you know. And everything the Pope says or everything the bishop says has to conform to that in order for it to be true. Um, what we're doing is we're making up our own private version of Catholicism. And that's what happened in the Protestant Reformation, sadly. It's not that the people were bad, they had bad intentions, but they, they just went off the rails because they, they wanted to define it the way they wanted to define it. And the whole New Testament is asking us constantly to come back humbly to listen to the faith, to what God is teaching us in all of Scripture. Excellent, Ken. I'm going to turn a little bit of a corner because I want to use this opportunity to point out a couple other things in Galatians chapter 3. Ken, that I'd like to pose to you as a question as a, as a linguist, as a, a, a Greek and Latin scholar. Because this was something that I saw in my own journey that bugged me and really opened my eyes. Verse 6, Galatians 3. Now listen to as I read. I'm reading, this is from the Revised Standard Version. Okay. Thus Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the part of that, believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, is a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Listen to that. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. My point is that they are not word for word. Paul no, was true. not, it does not seem that St. Paul directly quoted Genesis 15, 6, either uh, uh, paraphrased it, or was there another reason, another example? Verse 10, no wait, no, excuse me, verse 12. Uh, 
No, 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 no. In Gal- verse, yeah, verse 12 in Galatians chapter 3. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law. For he who through faith is righteous shall live. He who through faith is righteous shall live. That was the verse that Luther, uh, yeah, that's right. that changed his life. The, the quote right. is, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Now that's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, 4. Let me read what the Revised Standard Version has for that. Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Ken, what's going on? Why is the New Testament different than the Old Testament when when the New Testament author is quoting the Old Testament? Yeah, because the in the case of Galatians 3.6, Paul is quoting the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And uh, that's also the case with, um, with Galatians 3.11, where the, in the verse that you read, the way it was translated, he who is righteous or he who is just out of his faith shall live. And there's two ways to translate this. And this is where Luther translated it just one way. He translated, though the just shall live by faith, or the just will live from faith. Whereas it could be translated, the one who is righteous from faith shall live. And there's a slightly different meaning there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, um, in the case of the Habakkuk text, and I don't have that in front of me, um, the Hebrew that is, but I do remember looking at this in some detail in the past. Remember that Habakkuk lived right before the Babylonian exile. He was a prophet to the people of Israel. And here's all of the, you know, Jerusalem is under assault. And the people of God are are, uh, likely to be scattered now. And now he says, and now he says, the one who lives by his faith, by his trust in God in this horrible situation is the one that's going to live. In other words, this wasn't the one, this wasn't faith in exclusion of works. This was faith in the works of God. Excellent, Ken. I mean, Part of why I wanted to point out is just what you said in the beginning is that uh, what this shows is that St. Paul used the Septuagint in terms of the Old Testament. The modern translations use the Hebrew for the Old Testament and the Greek for the New Testament, whereas the New Testament authors themselves used the Greek Old Testament. And part of the power of that is that Greek Old Testament had all the books in it that are in the Catholic Bible. Uh, and that's part of the reason why when Luther went to the Hebrew Bible that these other books were put into question. So it's just a, a point to make. Ken, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for being And all of you, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Next week, we're going to begin a study of Romans. So we'll see you then. God bless you.